0: Welcome to Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. This is your reader and host, Mark Braun, here. Glad you could join us today. All right, so I remind you, you're listening to a recording provided for the use of those who are blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on airs. LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. All right, so we're going to start off, uh, unfortunately, with a couple of obituaries here. First, we have uh, from the obituaries section of the Los Angeles Times for Wednesday, June 28, 2023. Stanford A. Katz, September 3rd, 1931 to June 25th, 2023. Author unknown. Beloved husband, father, grandfather, and friend to many here in Los Angeles passed away uh, peacefully this week at the age of 91. Sandy was born in Buffalo, New York, the second of two children. His his family included his older sister, Jackie. The family moved out to Los Angeles when Sandy was a young child. He graduated from Dorsey High School and LACC as a proud veteran of the Korean War, having served in the Army Medical Corps. Sandy fell in love with Carolyn Kaplan, a neighbor and friend upon his return from the war. It all started on a double date in which Sandy and Carolyn were not paired, after which he was always telling his girlfriend at the time, why can't you be more like Carolyn? Well, it didn't take long for uh, for him to figure out it was Carolyn that was in love with him. They were married for over 65 years until Carolyn's passing in 2021. His legacy lives on with his three children, Mark, Stephen, and Sherry, as well as grandkids Jordan, Lucas, and Shauna. Family was everything to Sandy and Carolyn, and their household was home base for decades of friends and family gatherings for holidays birthdays, weddings, and special occasions of all kinds. He loved sports and fast cars, was an avid tennis player, runner, and would take his family on water skiing vacations all over California. He was a very successful developer and general contractor with his business, S.A. Cats Construction, starting out in the 1960s, creating friendships with many in Los Angeles' early and prominent developers. Was named in the top 100 builders in the state, He built apartment complexes, commercial buildings, and residences throughout the San Fernando Valley and West Side, including the iconic Kelbos Tower that stood for many years on Pico Boulevard. Uh, The memorial service will be held at Mount Sinai Memorial Park, Hollywood Hills, Thursday, June 29, at 3 p.m. In lieu of flowers, please consider contributing to the Jewish Family Fund. That was Stanford A. Katz, September 3rd, 1931 to June 25th, 2023, Author unknown. From the obituary section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, June 28, 2023. We have two or have two little ones here from the uh, Los Angeles Times Obituary section, Friday, June 30, 2023. First, Phyllis R. Burke, July 7, 1932, to June 21st, 2023, author unknown. Phyllis Rubin Burke died on June twenty-first, twenty twenty-three. Phyllis was the beloved wife of Professor Norman Burke, who predeceased her on February second, twenty o five. She was the mother of Beth Burke and Stephen Burke, and the grandmother of Daniel and Edward Burke, and uh, and David Bryan and Jillian Weissbord. Phyllis was a commercial insurance broker and loved square dancing, singing old musicals, and traveling. She was also a Dawson at the Skirball Museum and loved to read stories to young visitors. Phyllis was a good and faithful friend to many. That was Phyllis Burke, July 7, 1932 to June 21, 2023, Author Unknown. And this other one here, Jacqueline Sharon Burdoff, January 10, 1938 to June 6, 2023, Author Unknown. Jacqueline Burdoff. Burdorf, a pillar in our community, passed away peacefully on June 6, 2023. She was 85 years old. She was born to Joseph and Cecilia Stein in Los Angeles, California. She graduated from Fairfax High School and went on to earn a bachelor's degree in art history from the University of California, Los Angeles. She was an artist and a teacher. She met her sweetheart Arthur Burdoff, and they celebrated and they and they married in 60, 1962 they celebrated 55 years of marriage. She was a patron of the arts, a champion of the state of Israel, and an advocate for numerous charitable uh, pursuits. Jacqueline found tremendous joy spending time with her family and was absolutely devoted to them. Her love of travel took her all over the world. She is survived by her daughter, Suzanne, her daughter, Deborah, her son, Barry, her son, Gary, and her four grandchildren, Rachel, Mitchell, Carly, and Henry. She will be missed. Jack, that was Jacqueline Sharon Burdorf, January 10, 1938, to June 6, 2023, Author Unknown. And those are two other obituaries from the Los Angeles Times Obituary Notices section, Friday, June 30, 2023. We have one more here from the uh, California section of the Los Angeles Times for Saturday, July 1, 2023. Alan Arkin, Oscar winner with Rye Offhand Performances by Nardine Saad. Oscar winner Alan Arkin, whose background in improvisation and knack for comic drama were cornerstones of a career that yielded enduring characters in the 1996 comedy 1966 comedy, The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming, 2006's hit Little Miss Sunshine and 2012's acclaimed Argo has died. Our father was a unique, talented force for, of nature, both as an artist and a man. A loving husband, father, grand, and great-grandfather, he was adored and will be deeply missed, sons Adam, Matthew, and Anthony said in a statement shared with the Times on Friday. No details about Arkin's death were revealed. He was 89. Arkin's wry wit and off-hand performances brought realism to his work as he played his characters straight, making his droll moments more hilarious and added depth with elaborate costumes, makeup, up and quirky personality ticks. He delivered a fresh film nearly every year until late in his life. Acting used to be torture, and if I didn't do a scene well, I felt as if i died. I never considered quitting acting, though I couldn't because I was so shy that I needed it as a way to, of contacting people, Arkin told The Times in 1998. My real vocation for several decades has been trying to find out who I am Learned learn something about reality and consciousness. That's been my main work, and one of the results of this very long, slow process is that acting's become fun for me. Arkham was nominated for four Academy Awards and one for a supporting actor playing a dysfunctional family's foul, foul-mouthed, drug-fueled patriarch in 2006's Little Miss Sunshine. The actor witnessed the evolution of the film industry, which helped his Oscar-nominated turn as a composited studio boss in 2012's Best Picture winner, Argo. He said he based his character on legendary Warner Brothers. executive Jack Warner. Versatile and adaptable, Arkin launched his career as a member of Chicago's influential improvisational troupe Second City. He won a Tony for his first Broadway play, Carl Reiner's Enter Laughing before making his film debut in the 1966 Cold War farce The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming. He earned a Lead Actor Oscar nomination and won a Lead Actor Golden Globe for his role as the submarine commander. He followed that with the range-stretching role of an erudite psychopath stalking Audrey Hepburn in 1967's Wait Until Dark and earned another Oscar nomination as a tragic deaf and mute man. In nineteen sixty-eight, the heart is a lonely hunter. As the years went by, Arkin seemed to work at a furious pace. He played the bumbling detective in Inspector Clouseau, inheriting the role after Peter Sellers departed the Pink Panther franchise. Arkin went on to appear in the films Catch Twenty Two, The Seven Cent Solution, The In-Laws, Edward Scissorhands, Gross Point Blank, Gattaca and Slums of Beverly Hills before winning his Oscar for Little Miss Sunshine. In his later years, he perfected a reliably funny conjure persona in Grudge Man, Million Dollar Arm, and Going in Style, and in the Emmy-nominated Netflix series The Nominsky Method. When Argo Argo debuted at the Toronto International Film Festival, director Ben Affleck introduced Arkin as the sweetest guy in the world even though he's always playing the cranky guy with the heart of gold i can believe that the, the key to making people laugh was to approach silliness with seriousness which he did playing a serviceman working out the insanity of war in the russians are coming the russians are coming and catch 22. a salesman surreptitiously moving his family around the note like nomads in 1998 slums of beverly hills and a prosperous dentist reluctantly drawn into espionage in 1979's The Odd Couple, Odd Couple Comedy, The In-Laws. The more legit you make it, the funnier it is, Arkin said in 2008. I love insane, stupid comedies, but I can <clears throat> only make it work if it's a character that I can give some real history to and make real. like the, Like the, uh, like the guy I played in Little Miss Sunshine. He's a maniac, but to me, he was absolutely believable. Arkin spent much of his life feeling awkward, he said, desperately trying to become anyone but himself. When he took up acting, it felt comfortable to mimic another person's mannerisms and motivations. I always considered myself a character actor, he told the Times in 1991. That's what I always wanted to be. I always liked mustaches and hair and limbs and nose pieces and accents. But later in life, his perspective changed. I didn't think I had any identity, so the further away I could go from anything resembling me, I thought the more comfortable, he explained in 28, after his Oscar win. Now it's 180 degrees the other way. I don't want to put on the costume. I don't want to put on a wig or change my shape and voice. In his 2011 memoir, An Improvised Life, Arkin wrote that outside my life as an actor, I had almost no life at all. He also published a 1979 autobiography, Halfway Through the Door, several children's books, science fiction stories, and screenplays for short films. Away from the set, he enjoyed photography, playing jazz guitar, and songwriting. His small screen work earned him four Emmy nominations, notably for 1967's ABC Stage 67, the 2003 TV movie The Pentagon Papers, and a guest role in Chicago Hope the television series starring his son, Adam. Arkin also headlined ABC's short-lived madcap comedy, Harry, and appeared on Sesame Street with his second wife, Barbara Dana, in the early 1970s. Alan Wolf Arkin was born March 26, 1934, in New York City. His parents were teachers. His father was also a writer and painter. When Arkin was five, he announced that he wanted to be an actor, a phase his father was certain he'd outgrow. To decide on something at the age of five and stick to it comes from a very neurotic place. With me, that neurosis was rooted in the fact that the only time my parents paid attention to me was when I was performing, Arkin told the Times. Arkin said he was a self-confident child until he was about eight. That's when his parents told him they were communists, a revelation that isolated Arkin and his two younger siblings for much of their childhood. Arkin said he retreated into his imagination. The family moved to Los Angeles' Highland Park neighborhood in 1945 when a film composer, Uncle, told Arkin's father he could get him a job painting sets. But as soon as they arrived, there was a studio strike that lasted a year and a half. His, uh, his father taught for a while, but the job vaporized when the Red Scare, uh, when, the, when those suspected of being sympathetic to communism, were shunned and often blacklisted. The bottom basically fell out for our family when we moved here, Arkin said. We were so dirt par, I couldn't afford to go to the movies too often. But when I I went, whenever I could, and focused in on movies as if they were more important than anything in life. He attended L.A. City College and Cal State Los Angeles before earning a scholarship to Bennington College in Vermont, where he was one of a handful of male students. There he met his first wife, Jeremy Yaffe. He later married Dana, an actress, and then Suzanne Newlander, a psycho- psychotherapist. He scrounged for work as a part-time actor and singer. His folk band, The Terriers, made a cameo in the 1957 film Calypso Heat Wave and achieved mild success with the Banana Boat song made famous by Harry Belafonte. Arkin launched his stage career in 1958 but had trouble breaking into New York theater. I was broke, so my marriage was falling apart. And at the age of twenty-eight, I was convinced nothing would ever happen to me," he said. Enter Paul Silas, the founder of Chicago's Second City, who recruited Arkin as an original member of the Improvisational Comedy Company. I told him totally respons- I hold him totally responsible for whatever career I have," Arkin said of Silas. He was a maniac. He was impossible, but he was the heart and soul of the place. When Arkin made it to Broadway in 1963's Enter Laughing. He earned a Tony Award. The following year, he starred in Murray uh, Shigel's Love, L-U-V, directed by Mike Nichols. Arkin caught the eye of filmmaker Norman Jewison, who cast him in The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming. He's unique. He invented not acting, uh, said Nichols, who also directed Arkin in the 1970 war comedy Catch-22. Jewison had a similar impression of Arkin's remarkable ability to become another person. Allen never had an identifiable uh, screen personality because he just disappears into his characters, said Jewison. His accents are impeccable, and he's even able to change his look. But oddly enough, this gift has worked against him. He's always been underestimated, partly because he's never been in service of his own success, which is one of the things I love about him. When he turned 80, Arkin, by then a longtime San Diego resident, was presented with the San Diego Film Festival's inaugural Gregory Peck Award and said he wasn't ready to retire. Almost everybody I know who has done anything creative has a restlessness about them, he said. There's another mountain they haven't yet climbed. I certainly very much feel that. Uh, that's certainly the way, very much the way I feel. Arkin is survived by his wife, Suzanne, sons, Adam, Matthew, and Anthony grandchildren Molly, Emmett, Atticus, and Abigail, and great-grandson Elliot. That was Alan Arkin, 1934-2023, to 2023, Oscar winner with Rye offhand performances by Nardine Saad from the California section of the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, July 1st, 2023. Time staff writer Alexandra Del Rosario contributed to this report. Okay, we now have a couple of uh, Israel articles here. First from the world section the Los Angeles Times Monday June 26 2023 film producer testifies during Netanyahu trial Arnon Milchan whose credits include Hollywood megahits speaks about gifts by Tia Goldenberg Jerusalem an Israeli producer of Hollywood blockbuster films took the stand in Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's corruption trial Sunday describing how he routinely delivered tens of thousands of dollars worth of champagne, cigars, and other gifts requested by the Israeli leader. Arnon Milchan, who appeared by video conference from the British city of Brighton, near where he is based, is a key witness whose testimony is essential for prosecutors who are trying to prove that Netanyahu committed fraud and breach of trust in one of three cases brought against him. Prosecutors hope Milchan's testimony, which began Sunday and was expected to run through his, uh, this week and next, will paint a picture of plush favors granted to Netanyahu and his wife that allegedly spurred the Israeli leader to use his position of power to advance Milchan's interests. The defense will try to lay out its case that Netanyahu wasn't acting in Milchan's personal interests and that the gifts were just friendly gestures. Prosecution and defense lawyers are questioning Milchin in a hotel conference room in Brighton. Although no journalists are allowed to be present there, Netanyahu's wife Sarah, on a private visit to Britain, will sit in. Milchin's testimony, expected to last six hours a day, is being aired in a Jerusalem courtroom for judges and other lawyers who can also ask him questions and for journalists and other attendees to watch. Netanyahu who has attended some of the hearings during his trial arrived at the courtroom shortly after testimony began, flanked by his security detail and aides. Milchin was not charged in the case, uh, greeted him in Hebrew using, the, using Netanyahu's nickname, Shalom Bibi. Israeli Channel 13 aired footage of Sarah Netanyahu and Milchan 78 walking separately up the stairs in the hotel. A screen was set up in the Jerusalem courtroom to air the testimony. According to the indictment, Milchan, whose production credits include A uh, Pretty Woman, Twelve Years a Slave, and The Revenant, gave Netanyahu and his wife boxes of cigars and crates of champagne over a period of several years. Along with jewelry, they amounted to a value of nearly two hundred thousand dollars, what the indictment describes as a supply line of lavish gifts. The indictment accuses Netanyahu of using his influential perch to assist Milchan. To secure a U.S. visa extension by drawing on his diplomatic contacts, among them former Secretary of State John F. Kerry. Prosecutors also accused Net Yahoo of working to push legislation that would have granted Milchin millions in tax breaks. Considering the many links between the defendant Net Yahoo and Milchin, the defendant Net Yahoo should have entirely avoided dealing with Milchin's affairs, the indictment says, adding that Net Yahoo and Milchin, an Israeli citizen, have had ties since 1999. Milchan is testifying in one of three cases being brought against Netanyahu. The other two, for which he is charged with bribery, fraud, and breach of trust, accuse Netanyahu of exchanging regulatory favors with powerful media moguls for more positive coverage. Netanyahu denies any wrongdoing, claiming he was the victim of a witch hunt orchestrated by a liberal media and a biased justice system. Netanyahu's legal woes have dogged him politically, putting his fitness to rule while on trial at the center of a political crisis that sent Israelis to the polls five times in under four years. They have also ruled, uh, fueled accusations by critics that Netanyahu is pushing a contentious government plan to overhaul Israel's judiciary as a way to escape the charges. Netanyahu denies that. The trial, which began in 2020, has still not heard from. Netanyahu has featured more than 40 prosecution witnesses, including some of Netanyahu's closest former confidants who turned against the speaker, the premier. Witness accounts have shed light not only on the three cases, but also revealed sensational details about Netanyahu's character and his family's reputation for living off the largesse of taxpayers and wealthy supporters. Milchen's aide, Haddad's client, testified last year that the, fam- that the family loves gifts. Though the idea of a plea bargain has surfaced, prosecutors appear determined to see the trial through. That was film producer testifies during Netanyahu trial by Tia Goldenberg. From the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, June 26, 2023, Goldenberg writes for the Associated Press. Or right, Here's one more Israel story. Uh, from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, June 29, 2023, Israeli reservists spell out demands. Letter from 110 airmen said they won't show up for duty if judiciary overhaul takes place, from the Associated Press. Tel Aviv. Dozens of Israeli Air Force reservists said Wednesday that they would refuse to show up for a duty if Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's right-wing government moves ahead with a contentious plan to overhaul the country's judiciary. The threat comes after Netanyahu said his government would proceed with the overhaul after talks with the opposition to find a compromise faltered. Coalition legislatures have since been advancing a legal change to what is known as the Reasonable Standard, which critics say would allow the government to pass arbitrary decisions and grant it too much power. Israeli media reported that 110 Air Force veterans signed the letter Wednesday, saying that if the law moving ahead in Parliament now or any other law proposed as part of, it, if it's, of the overhaul is passed, the Reservists would not show up for duty. Legislation like this is grants, the government, uh, grants the government limitless power with no restraint by the judiciary and it will bring us to the point of no return, the letter said. We will not serve the military of a country that is not democratic. Airmen are seen as the cream of the military's personnel and irreplaceable elements of many of Israel's battle plans. Similar letters from reservists in other forces have also been issued. The Netanyahu government's plans to overhaul the judiciary plunged Israel into an unprecedented crisis this year, prompting a chorus of threats from reservists who make up the backbone of the country's military to refuse to show up for service if the plan is implemented. Defense Minister Yoav Gallant delivered a speech expressing concern about the military because of the overhaul. That led NetYahu to fire him, a move that sparked mass protests and a day-long labor strike. The firing was reversed two weeks later. There was Israeli reservists spell out demands from the Associated Press out of the World Section of the Los Angeles Times Thursday, June 29, 2023. Okay, moving on to other parts of the world. This is one from the Perspective Section of the Los Angeles Times for Friday, June 30, 2023. Group to address ecological impact of war against Ukraine. Zelensky meets with Thunberg others as Russian Strike Kills 8, from the Associated Press. Kiev, Ukraine. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky met Thursday with Swedish environmental activist Greta Thunberg and prominent European figures who were forming a working group to address ecological damage from the 16-month-old Russian invasion. The meeting in the Ukrainian capital came as fighting continued around the country. The government of the... Kirsten region Olexa- Governor of the Kyrgyzstan region, Alexander Prokundin, said two people were killed in the region's capital in a Russian strike that hit residents, a medical facility, and a school where residents were lined up to receive aid. Another person was killed in a strike on the village of Belzurka, the regional prosecutor's office said. The presidential office said Thursday morning, that at least eight civilians died in Russian attacks during the previous 24 hours. The working group on the environment includes Thunberg, former swedish Deputy Prime Minister Margot Wallström, European Parliament Vice President Heidi Hautala, and former Irish President Mary Robinson. Zelensky said forming the group is a very important signal of supporting Ukraine. It's really important. We need your professional help. Thunberg said Russian forces are deliberately targeting the environment and people's livelihoods and homes, and therefore are also destroying lives, because this is, after all, a matter of people. The objectives of the working group are evaluating the environmental damage resulting from the war, formulating mechanisms to hold Russia accountable, and undertaking efforts to restore Ukraine's ecology. In Moscow, the head of the Russian Orthodox Church patriarch Kirill i uh, met with cardinal matteo zuppi the vatican envoy for seeking peace between russia and ukraine kirill a supporter of the war said it is very important that the christian communities of east and west take part of the process in the process of reconciliation according to videos circulated by the russian church There was grouped to address ecological impact of war against ukraine from the associated press Out of the Perspective section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, June 30th, 2023. And this other one is from the Perspective section of the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, July 1st, 2023. Jewish Complex opens in Berlin. Paris Campus is changing the narrative, says a leading Chabad rabbi from the Associated Press. Berlin. When Berlin Rabbi Yehuda Techtal first talked about his dreams of building Germany's biggest Jewish educational and cultural complex since World War II, most people who heard about the plan were skeptical. But five years after the groundbreaking uh, techtal a Berlin rabbi and head of the local Chabad community beams as he stood onto, steps onto the seventh floor balcony of the new curved blue-tilted building overlooking the campus amphitheater, garden, playground, a plot still covered with containers and construction material that will eventually become a sports field we're changing the narrative about jews in germany techtal said too often people only think about the holocaust and anti-semitism when it when it comes to jews in germany the 50 year old rabbi said our jewish campus is about the future it's about joy about studying and living together the pierce jew the pierce jewish community campus in the German capital's Wilmersdorf neighborhood officially opened June 25th. The Habad community's 550 kindergarten, elementary, and high school students who are currently spread out in different buildings across the city will all move to the campus when the new school year begins at the end of August. In addition to the schools, the campus also features a movie theater and music studio, library, kosher deli, and a huge indoor basketball court and gym that can be turned into a lecture hall for up to 600 people or a reception hall for weddings and bar mitzvahs there's a kitchen for the school cafeteria and another huge one to cater receptions which includes a bakery to make pastries or to prepare challah for Shabbat Jessica Kalam- Kalmanovich a mother of a daughter and son who attend the Chabad's elementary school and kindergarten in different neighborhoods of the city said her family can't wait. Every morning when we drive by the campus, my son asks me when is my kindergarten in the blue building finally ready for me to start going there, she said. The 31-year-old, who was born in Kazakhstan and came to Germany as an infant, called the new campus a milestone for Jews in Berlin. Our children will get a good Jewish education there. We will be in the center of the city and we will no longer have problems finding kosher food she said we will be very visible as jews in berlin but at the same time feel protected unlike many other jewish institutions in germany that are hidden behind walls for fear of possible anti-semitic attacks then the new campus has a glass fence around it it is connected to the synagogue and community center that have been operated for many years by habad an orthodox jewish hasidic movement We didn't want this to feel like a ghetto, said Tektal. We wanted this to be a happy place, an open house. When Tektal, who grew up in Brooklyn, New York, was asked to go to Germany 27 years ago to revive Jewish life there, he had mixed feelings. His great-grandfather was murdered in the Nazi's Auschwitz death camp, and more than 60 other relatives also perished in the Holocaust. But together with his wife Leah, Tektal set out to bring light to the darkness. Berlin was home to Germany's biggest Jewish community before the Holocaust. In 1933, the year the Nazis came to power, around 160,500 Jews lived in Berlin. By the end of World War II in 1945, the numbers had diminished to about 7,000 through immigration and extermination. Almost 80 years after the Holocaust, Berlin's Jewish community is still a far cry from the past, but it's vibrant again with 30,000 to 50,000 Jews, and Tile has played a major role in creating this bustling community. That was Jewish Complex Opens in Berlin from the Associated Press. Out of the Perspective section of the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, July 1st, 2023. All right, and here we go back to the U.S. And this one from the Los Angeles Times for Wednesday, June 28, 2023. Epstein's suicide aided by negligence, report says, by Nathan Solis. Jeffrey Epstein, the wealthy financier accused of orchestrating a sex-trafficking ring involving girls, died by suicide, and not foul play, according to a watchdog report released nearly four years after his death that highlighted negligence, misconduct, and other failures at the New York jail. Epstein, 66, was able to kill himself amid lax oversight at the Metropolitan Correctional Center a little over a month after federal authorities took him into custody, Department of Justice Inspector General Michael Lee Horowitz said in a report released Tuesday. Numerous and serious instances of misconduct and dereliction of duty contributed to a set that allowed arguably one of the most notorious inmates in the Federal Bureau of Prisons custody the opportunity to take his own life, Horowitz said. Epstein was found hanging by a bedsheet in his cell on August 10, 2019. At the time, he had pleaded not guilty to numerous charges and was facing up to 45 years in prison involving allegations of sex trafficking that dated uh, to the early 2000s. The wealthy hedge fund manager, who once counted as friends, former Presidents Clinton and Trump, Britain's Prince Andrew, and lawyer Alan Dershowitz died while in custody. He was placed in a special housing unit on July 7, away from the general population, and kept locked in his cell for 23 hours a day, according to the report. On July 23, 2019, after an apparent suicide attempt, he was placed on suicide watch, according to the report. Initially, Epstein told staff at the corrections center that his uh, cellmate had tried to kill him. But later he said he did not know what happened and why and didn't want to talk about his injuries. Another inmate in the same unit reported hearing Epstein's cellmate call for help and explained that Epstein tried to hang himself from his bunk bed ladder, according to the report. In the special unit, staff were required to observe all inmates, conduct rounds and in, uh, inmate counts, and search inmate cells, Inspector General's report said. Epstein was on suicide watch, but that status was removed the day after his attempt, according to the report. He also was housed with a cellmate, but the day before he died his cellmate was transferred out of the detention center. The staff was aware that Epstein was alone, but did not take steps to assign him a new cellmate. And staff did not carry out their responsibilities in the hours before Epstein's death, according to the report. Only one cell in the unit was searched on August 9, and it was not Epstein's. The report said that none of the required inmate counts were done after 4 p.m., and staff did not conduct their 30-minute rounds after about 10.40 p.m. Had Epstein's cell been searched as required, the search would have revealed that Epstein had excess prison blankets, linens, and clothes in his cell, according to the report. The staff also falsified count slips and round sheets uh, to, uh, to show that they that they had been performed when they were not, leaving Epstein unobserved for hours before his death, according to the report. Two Metropolitan Correctional Center officers were criminally charged with falsifying records, but those charges were later dismissed when the employees uh, compiled uh, with the terms of deferred prosecution agreements uh, entered with the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York, according to the report. One of the officers admitted he had dozed off for periods while at work. The report also noted that the video camera surveillance system in the special unit did not work, a long-standing issue in the detention center. Although cameras provided live feeds to the staff's monitoring stations, nearly all of the cameras in and around the special unit were where Epstein was being housed stopped recording video in late July, 2019, and were not working at the time of Epstein's death, according to the report. Two days before Epstein's death, he had met with attorneys at the Correction Center as he had on prior occasions and signed a new last will and testament, according to the report. Officials at the Correction Center said they were unaware of the new will until after Epstein's death. He also was allowed in to make an unrecorded, unmonitored phone call before he returned to his cell, which was in violation of the Bureau of Prisons policies, the report said. He told staff he had called his mother, but he actually called someone with whom he had a personal relationship, according to the report. There is also no evidence that contradicts uh, the previous findings from the FBI that Epstein's death was not the result of foul play. The New York City Chief Medical Examiner also determined that Epstein died by suicide. While the general, while the office of the general of the inspector general determined Metropolitan Correctional Center New York staff engaged in significant misconduct and dereliction of their duties, we did not uncover evidence contradicting the FBI's determination regarding the absence of criminality in conge- connection with Epstein's death. The report said. Horowitz called the Bureau of Prisons' failures troubling, not only because staff failed to keep watch over a person in their custody but also because Epstein's death prematurely ended the process of criminal justice. The staff's failures effectively deprived Epstein's numerous victims of the opportunity to seek justice through the criminal justice process, the report said. Though Epstein escaped a criminal trial, two major banking institutions have agreed to pay his victims. On Monday, a U.S. district judge in New York gave preliminary approval to a $290 million agreement from JP Morgan Chase to settle a lawsuit out of court. The settlement was announced a month after the Dutch Bank agreed to pay $75 million to settle a separate lawsuit on similar claims, according to court records. The plaintiff on the, on the case, identified as Jane Doe 1, Claimed that J.P. Morgan Chase provided Epstein and his associates hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash and access to wire services and other banking investment services between 1998 and 2013. We all now understand that Epstein's behavior was monstrous, and we believe this settlement is in the best interest of all parties, especially the survivors who suffered unimaginable abuse at the hands of this man. J.P. Morgan Chase said in a statement earlier this month after it announced the settlement. That was Epstein's suicide aided by negligence, report says, by Nathan Solis. From the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, June 28, 2023. All right, and here's something from the Nation section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, June 30th, 2023. Feinstein still recovering, stays in Capitol. Senator won't go back to San Francisco during July 4 recess. Her health continues to be under scrutiny, by Owen Tucker Smith. Washington. Senator Diane Feinstein who is recovering from a serious shingles infection is spending the senator's two-week 4th of July recess in Washington Senators and House members usually use their recesses to return to their home states and connect with their constituents but the California democrat has no plans to make a trip to San Francisco after a spokesperson her uh, spokesperson uh, Ch- Adam Russell told the times feinstein turned 90 last week and for months uh, for months now the media have been scrutinizing her age, well-being, and ability to carry out the duties of representing 39 million people. The senator's office did not say whether her decision to stay put was made on the advice of a doctor, but Ron Eckstein, her press secretary, said she would remain in Washington while she continues to recover. As recently as April 2022, one of Feinstein's most important Democratic allies was pointing to her travel schedule as proof that she was fit to serve. She is consistently traveling between California and the Capitol, working relentlessly to ensure Californians' needs are met and voices are heard, San Francisco's Representative Nancy Pelosi, who was House Speaker at the time, said in a statement. Feinstein now heads into the holiday break with a growing reputation as a distant co worker. Many California lawmakers no longer expect her to communicate with her. See, with her. CNN reported last week. The senator asked about CNN's report. Took issue with the idea that she no longer speaks with other members of her state's delegation. I don't know the. I don't know the. I don't know the issue. Feinstein told the Times in a brief interview on Capitol Hill last week. I don't think that's true. I have conversations with all of them that I come in contact with. I have not turned down anyone for a visit. She characterized the report as unfair asserting that colleagues weren't initiating com- uh, conversations with her. I have not received a single request, she said. If I receive a request to talk, I will. I have not received a single request. Feinstein was diagnosed with the shingles in late February and was hospitalized until March 6. As of her return to Congress last month, she was exper- experiencing temporary side effects from the virus that warranted uh, a lighter schedule, her office said. Californians' approval of Feinstein's job performance has plunged as state and national news outlets have paid more attention to her age and health problems. Many longtime supporters still stand behind Feinstein, saying that increased scrutiny of her health and calls for her to vacate her seat are insensitive, disrespectful, and sexist. But the percentage of Californians who approve of how the senator is handling her job fell from 41 to 31 percent over the last eight months, according to a recent survey by the Public Policy Institute of California. Before this month, Feinstein's rating in the Institute's survey had never dropped below 40%. But during Feinstein's career in the Senate, many of her constituents have reported uncertain feelings about her. At one point, more than one in four Californians say they did not know whether they approved of her, according to Public Policy Institute surveys. But that unsure group is disappearing. Just 4% of Californians now say they don't know whether they approve of Feinstein's work. Feinstein's approval rating may rebound now that she has returned to Washington. The senator's hospitalization and months-long absence from Capitol Hill prompted criticism from fellow Democrats after she missed important votes. As a member of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Feinstein has an important role in confirming the president's judicial nominees. Since her return, she has been present for most votes, and aides have reported that she is returning to her normal workload. The senator still has a close ally in Pelosi. The former House Speaker continues to speak highly of Feinstein's career, and Pelosi's daughter, Nancy Corinne Prouda, helped Feinstein with day-to-day work on Capitol Hill after the senator returned to Washington. Pelosi's office did not address a question about Prouda's current involvement in Feinstein's daily life. Senator Feinstein has achieved major accomplishments in her legendary career and she's back to work in the Capitol, determined to do even more, Pelosi said in a statement to the Times. California is well served by the commitment, experience, and seniority that Senator Feinstein brings, including her leadership on the Appropriations Committee and for gun violence prevention. Candidates seeking Feinstein's seat in the 2024 election have also stopped short of criticizing her openly. I don't think there was a lot of House Senate collaboration in the California de- delegation period, Representative Katie Porter, Democrat of Irvine, told CNN. Representative Barbara Lee, Democrat of Oakland, reminded the network's reporter that there's a human side of it. And Representative Adam B. Schiff, Democrat of Burbank, emphasized that his office works with her consistently. Feinstein could not shake up the race. Feinstein could shake up the race. I'd replace her if she changes her retirement plans and steps down before her term ends in January 2025. Democratic Governor Newsom, Gavin Newsom would fill the vacancy, and he has said he would choose a black woman for the post. Lee is the only major Democratic candidate who would fit that description. That was Feinstein Still Recovering Stays in Capital by Owen Tucker Smith from the Nation section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, June 30, 2023. Time staff writer Benjamin Oreskes in Los Angeles contributed to this report. All right, now let's move on to some entertainment news, starting with this one from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, June twenty fifth, 2023. New York set ablaze. The Apple TV Plus adaptation of Garth Risk Halberg's 70-set City on Fire presents a hollow version of early 2005 history by Bonnie Johnson. By the time it came out in twenty fifteen, Garth Risk Halberg's novel City on Fire was notorious for its scope of ambition, unheard of advance, and early acquisition by Scott Rudden. Upon release, it sold well but received middling reviews. Predictably it landed in developed uh, purgatory. The text was set in the New York City of nineteen seventy six to seventy seven as well. As well tried uh, milieu in T- uh, TV and film. For the Apple TV Plus miniseries concluded fr- uh, concluding Friday, Josh Schwartz and Stephanie Savage adapted the story to take place in 2002 03, or a m- muted, blurry ver- version thereof. The book, more than 900 pages, was an exhaustive inv- inventory of its ensemble's life, each in some way an emblem of its time. It was also a dead white girl thriller. Predictably, the showrunners, resolve, the showrunners resolve the book's ambivalence by closing in on the crime story, sacrificing much of its idiosyncrasy. They're best known for Gossip Girl and The O.C. The new series' quicker pace tightens the main narrative thread and builds momentum of the book sometimes lost. But the in scene suffers inexplicably and lacks resonance with our more recent era. The plot centers on the shooting of an NYU freshman, Samantha, the night of a downtown rock show and an uptown penthouse soiree. When Sam leaves the show to see someone at the party, an unidentified acquaintance pursues her into Central Park, fires twice, and leaves her for dead. As Sam lies in a coma over the following weeks, investigations honed in on ties between the downtown musicians led by a self-styled militant and the Hamilton Sweeney tycoon clan hosting the party that night the book opens at the holidays with its critical action on new year's eve then revisits the summer that led there the show does uh, does the inverse the shooting takes place on the 4th of july then we return to the previous winter the series final installment invokes the regional blackout of august 2003 echoing that of the book's late chapters set in july 1977 the band playing downtown on the fateful night once featured William Hamilton Sweeney, junkie painter's son of the family. He, his replacement is Nikki Chaos, a pyromaniacal Svengali ruling, a cadre known as the Phalanx. Sam's friend Charlie joins the ranks to seek the truth about her shooting. William's earnest boyfriend, Mercer, and dutiful sister, Regan, figure into the picture uptown. Armory Gould is the demon brother of William and Regan's stepmom, busy conducting a coup of his own. He hires Nicky to advance his development plans by setting fires in the Bronx and blackmails Regan's ethically challenged husband Keith until handling the payments. Thus, Keith encounters Sam and gets involved with her, never mind that she's in college. When Nicky's volatile alliance with Armory breaks down, He plots revenge with stolen explosives and Sam risks exposing the phalanx. The series changes the story's backdrop from punk to indie rock, from NYC's bankruptcy crisis uh, to the post-9-11 concerns. Popular New York bands like The Rapture and the Yeah Yeah Yeah, Yeahs from the soundtrack with the helping of then-resurgent downtown acts from the story's original period, Bush Tetris Television et al., Charlie's dad died in a World Trade Center, in the World Trade Center, and we briefly see the kids walk past ground zero. See something, say something fits through the Zine style opening sequence. The heroic cop who survived polio in the book is an Arab American disabled by a hate crime in the show's backstory. While the book's enchantment, with its settling with its setting, could feel fetishistic, the show's use of a memorable era feels strangely amnesiac. The time frame coincides with the invasion of Iraq that triggered major protests in Manhattan. The freshly militarized NYPD put snipers on rooftops for peace marches, raided convergence spaces, and conducted mass arrests. I had the personal pleasure. It was the time of the government mantra, if you're not with us, you're against us, and those who ran afoul of the Patriot Act faced... Uh, FISA warrants, and no-fly lists. That there's no acknowledgement of any of this in a show dealing with cops and a group like the Phalanx is ahistorical and downright bizarre. Like Sam, I was a college musician-journalist and Zion author who joined a radical collective and moved into an industrial squat. It was a potent time for both activism and underground music, but you wouldn't know it watching the show. Acting musician Max Milner plays Nicky with enough sex appeal and actual musicality that perhaps his credo needn't exert the same pull it does in the book, where it's better developed. Still, it's hard to imagine that Sam followed him for over six months on a platform of burn it down and something vague about gentrification. Charlie sees through him in less than six weeks. Yet one thing carries the series. In a surprise turn, John Cameron Mitchell plays Armory with Corella de hair and a nearly visible fangs. For queer kids of the show's era, uh, Michelli's Hedwig and the angry Inch and Shortbus are such cherished cultural touchstones, it's initially hard to see him as other than a sort of theatrical gay Santa Claus. In fact, he workshops he Hedwig at the club where some of the series' scenes are set but he clearly delights in his newfound malevolence and his performance as a bespoke uh, camp uh, Camp Machiavelli supplies the humor in the book sorely lacked. In Halberg's text, Richard, an alcoholic journalist and buddy of the virtuous cop, takes an interest in Sam's story. After discovering the arrangement behind the fires, he winds up in the harbor. His California neighbor, Jenny, is assistant to William's gallerist. She's a character with depth in the book, but a peripheral art groupie in the show where William takes over the Nancy Drew beat. In the original story, Regan's past rape led to the to a difficult pre-row abortion. In the series, it leads to an incredible adoption coincidence. It's a group rushing piece of narrative fruit that Halberg, not a paragon of restraint, managed to resist in his doorstep tome. Mercer who shares none of William's privilege is one of the book's main protagonists, but the shows spent sadly little time in Mercer's world. Without more access to his life in Regan's, it's hard to understand why they're with the uh, chronic dis- with chronic dissemblers like William and Keith. Yet the series uh, preserves at least a dose a dozen minor characters and several tangi- tangential storylines like the cup's fertility crisis, and his colleagues, who are no longer racist thugs, adding or expanding several more, like a pointless red herring involving Regan's son. We we get every confirmation, confrontation, and confession that Halberg withheld, and the dead don't stay dead in the series. We even see Armory lose his cool in a gratifying tantrum by Mitchell, who chews up a limbo interior before going full-on Scooby-Doo villain. To the extent that the book was a disguised genre thriller, the show does a serviceable job of taming Halberg's story to the small screen. Mitchell's mischief helps dis, uh, distract from the deficit of war on terror, verisimilitude. multitude. Ideally, someone will compress his appearances into a highlight reel, no-ho Hank style, for curious fans who haven't eight hours to burn on their couch in the middle of Pride Month. That was new york set ablaze by ronnie johnson bonnie johnson that is from the calendar section of the los angeles times sunday june 25th 2023 johnson's work has appeared in the guardian the new york times los angeles review of books the believer and elsewhere and we have this one from the calendar section of the los angeles times from monday june 26 2023 he created a beloved tradition sheldon harnick was the prolific lyricist behind Fiddler on the Roof and other musicals by Barbara Eisenberg. In 2016, when the prolific award-winning Broadway lyricist Sheldon Harnick was 92, I asked him whether he knew the secret to his longevity. No, replied the man who brought us the lyrics to such beloved musicals as Fiddler on the Roof, Fiorello, and She Loves Me, but I'm grateful for it. While many of us assumed he just might live forever, Harnick died Friday at age 99 of natural causes at his longtime apartment on New York's Upper West Side, according to his publicist, Sean Katz. Harnick long lived on Central Park West, where his sunlit living room hosted several paintings by his wife of 58 years, artist and photographer Marjorie Gray Harnick, as well as gorgeous views. I first spoke with Sheldon Harnick when I wrote an article for The Times about Fiddler on the Roof in 2002 but I got to know him best when I wrote a book about the show in 2014. It was warm, welcoming, very amusing, and his memory was razor sharp. The child of parents born in Eastern Europe, Harnett grew up on the Northwestern side of Chicago, playing the violin and thinking he would become a violinist. But after going to Northwestern University, where he seriously studied violin, he was also seriously drawn to writing for the school's lavish student reviews, and by the time I graduated, I knew my heart was with the theater, not the violin. Actually, he probably knew it even before college. His uh, His mother celebrated every occasion with a poem, he once told me. And pretty soon, he too was writing poems, then song lyrics, sketches, and parodies in high school and college. Later in the army, he would write songs and sketches to entertain the troops. Harnick's first show with Joseph Stein and Barry Bach was 1958's The Body Beautiful, which ran just six weeks on Broadway. Harnick liked to uh, to quip that it would have run seven weeks, but there was a blizzard. But a score impressed producer-director Harold Prince. It indirectly led to 1959's Fiorello, the musical tale of New York mayor Fiorello LaGuardia, which Prince co-produced with a score by Bach and Harnick, and a book by writers Jerome Weedman and George Abbott. They went on to win a Pulitzer Prize for drama. Bach and Hartnick wrote seven Broadway scores together, including She Loves Me in 1963 and The Apple Tree in 1966. Although nearly all of Harnick and Bach's shows have done well over the years, their biggest hit was Fiddler. It opened on Broadway on September 22, 1964. While its first review from noted critic Walter Kerr wasn't very good, it hardly mattered. The next day, there were lines around the block, and nearly eight years and 8,000 performances later, it became the longest-running show on Broadway at the time. It won nine Tony Awards, including Best Musical, and was still on Broadway when United Artists released uh, Norman Jewison's film of the same name in 1971. There have been stage productions all over the world, as well as in thousands of schools, community centers, and regional theaters. Harnack was also very organized, lucky for me. He kept all the lyrics for Fither on the Roof in a thick, pale blue three-ring binder. And after going off to another room to get it during our interview, he started calling out titles for songs going back to 1961 and laughing aloud at some of them. Consider Fiddler's first song, originally called We Never Missed a Sabbath Yet. Its it's first opening lines were about getting ready for the Sabbath, cleaning the house, plucking the chickens for supper, and such. It eventually became Tradition, one of the musical theater's best-known songs. Harnick, Bach, and Stein had written nearly a complete show before a meeting with director Jerome Robbins, Harnick once told me, and Robbins kept asking them what the show was about. We would say it's about this dairyman and his daughters, Harnack told me, until finally Harnack said it's about tradition. Rambos replied, that's it, write that. So they did. Other songs came and went. There was a discarded song written for the butcher and another also discarded for Motel, uh, the tailor called "Dear Sweet Sewing Machine, which featured his promise to love, honor, and keep polished his new sewing machine. Harnick would write lyrics on hotel stationery, scraps of paper, and simply in his head. One time he was concentrating so hard on putting lyrics to a melody that Bach had written that he stepped right in front of a truck. The driver slammed on the brakes and honked his horn, Harnick told me. I looked up, startled, and then quit right on walking, working on that song, Jerry told me Jerry told me to be more careful. That was he created a beloved tradition by Barbara Eisenberg. From the calendar section, of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, June 26, 2023. Eisenberg is a former Times staff writer and the author of Tradition, the highly improbable, ultimately triumphant Broadway uh, to Hollywood story, Fiddler on the Roof, the world's most beloved musical. All right, now we're going to read a few little articles from The Envelope, a special issue of the Los Angeles Times for June 22, 2023. And we're going to start off with this one from the Contenders section. Traveling out of his comfort zone, comic actor Eugene Levy has to gasp be himself on a series, taking trips he might not want to, but he soon gets the hang of it by Jordan Reef. Comedian Eugene Levy is a nature lover, which is why his arm is shoulder deep in an elephant's rectum. That's why you'll find him in episode 6 of his Apple TV Plus show, The Reluctant Traveler. It's not for laughs, and it's not for love. It's just a 76-year-old Schitt's Creek star taking a stool sample from an ailing pachyderm, something he never would have thought of doing sitting at home, which is generally where he'd rather be. Instead, the series has him circling the globe in episodes set in Finland, Costa Rica, the Maldives, Venice, Utah, Lisbon, South Africa, and Tokyo. Each one features a five-star resorts, A-list cuisine, and activities tied to local customs. In Finland, he goes ice fishing and tastes reindeer meat. I really didn't like it, but I chewed it and said, this is pretty good, and they got all happy, and that was great, he recalls from his home in Toronto. I could have said, honestly, I knew I wouldn't like it. It's not a show about a grouchy old neurotic who learns to love to travel. Instead, it's a show about a grouchy old erotic who learns to deal with it. The scariest elements aren't the deadly big five or of the, savannah, of the African savannah, lion, leopard, rhino, elephant, and buffalo. No, for Levy, the most frightening thing of all is playing a role he's never played before, himself. I was nervous about it because I never really wanted to be myself on camera, he says. As a character actor in comedy, I put on looks. I can take it as far as I want to take it because it's not me. But hosting this thing and being yourself, talking about traveling and food and meeting people, that was completely new territory for me. Which is why Levy was so reluctant to participate in The Reluctant Traveler. But executives at Apple TV Plus were huge Schitt's Creek fans and thought the man who played Johnny Rose, co-manager of the sitcom's Rosebud Motel, would be perfect to introduce audiences to many of the world's finest hotels. When Levy's agent first mentioned it, the comedian flatly rejected the offer. And when executive producer David Brindley insisted on a phone meeting, Levy took the call intending to politely list all the reasons he was passing. They said this is is actually a better show because it's with somebody who's got a lot of issues about traveling, he recalls. So when the idea was pitched back to me, I said, okay, I get that. If I can be myself and not have to pretend to be excited about every single thing, that made sense to me. The first episode takes him to the frozen north of Finland, where he looks cold and uncomfortable and hardly happy to dine on reindeer. But by the fourth episode, he enters toward embracing adventure. His fear of heights freezes him on a suspension bridge in the Costa Rican rainforest and terrifies him during a desert copter flight in Utah. But at the same time, he begins to warm to the people around him, whether it's Milo, a member of the Navajo tribe who invites him up to his nephew's traditional dance performance, or Alessandro, a third-generation Venetian gondolier who, nearing retirement, is preparing to hand his boat down to his son. I understand family. I totally get it, Levy says, having created Shit's Creek with his son Dan. The two co-starred as father and son while his daughter Sarah played cafe owner Twyla Sands. Levy shepherded the show through six seasons, winning a record nine Emmy Awards in a single season for a comedy series and two Golden Globes. I was just delighting in watching him work, he says to his son. And my daughter, I got such a kick out of watching both of them on camera. But I also got a big kick, big kick out of uh, watching him in the writing room and how he started taking over the room. How quickly he developed into a really top-notch showrunner in such a short time. Just a lot of pride in that experience. Born and raised in Hamilton, Ontario, Levy was in his 20s when he auditioned for the touring production of Godspell, which was casting from nearby Toronto for performances north of the border. He and his buddy Martin Short tried out, as did such young hopefuls as Gilda Radner, who would go on to Saturday Night Live fame, and actor Victor Garber, Titanic. It was our very first professional show, Levy recalls, The callback auditions are still so memorable to Marty and me. We still talk about it a lot, seeing Gilda Radner for the first time auditioning. Her audition song was Zippity Doodah," and we thought, how cute is this girl? How sad that she doesn't know what to audition with. Little did we know that that's all she needed. It was an amazing show, our first show, and the most exciting thing about it was we got a check every single week, a $160 check. $160 bucks, $160 check. Also with the show were Andrea Martin and Dave Thomas, both of whom later joined Levy, Short, John Candy in the cast of the Canadian sketch comedy show SCTV. And ran from 1976 to 1984, launching the careers of numerous comic greats and winning Levy two Emmys for his writing. It's the subject of the upcoming An Afternoon with SCTV, a long-awaited Netflix documentary directed by Martin Scorsese. I know he loved the show, which is why he wanted to do it, Levy says of the renowned filmmaker. I know I was in it, but I have enough objectivity to know it really was a great show. With the film tied up in post-production, Levy says he hopes to see it before he dies, or at least before the second season of The Reluctant Traveler. I'm more confident being on camera now than I was when the show started, he says of overcoming his reluctance and returning for more. The basic principle of this is don't be afraid to try something when it comes to traveling. I was always the one to say, knowing me, I'm not going to like it. So why would I even bother? And now at least I could say I was there. That was Traveling Out of His Comfort Zone by Jordan Reef from the Contenders section. And also from the Contenders section, this is called Mel Brooks Goes Back in Time for More it turns out comics were hungry to be part of the legend's wacky series history of the world part 2 for decades after the part 1 movie by gregory elwood sequels are practically lifeblood lifeblood of hollywood still landing a sequel to a four decade old movie is extraordinary so when the legendary mel brooks reached out to nick crow about fashioning a long awaited part 2 to the cult 1981 comedy history of the world part 1 The Big Mouth creator was adamantly taken aback. It's probably one of the most surreal things that's ever happened, not only in my career, but in my life, because he's truly my hero. And my biggest comedy influence, Kroll says. So if it had just been the, the call, it would have been a career highlight. But then actually getting to work with him and make this show alongside with him was just beyond anything I could have imagined. The original 20th Century Fox release featured storylines set during the Stone Age, the Roman Empire, and the French Revolution, among other eras, with additional comic bits and musical numbers thrown in for good measure. Fast forward to 2020, and it's clear the film's narrative format was perfectly suited for the style of a contemporary sketch comedy television show, something right up Kroll's alley after the success of 2013-15's The Kroll Show. But Crow knew he'd need collaborators to cover a much wider canvas than what his Comedy Central series entailed. He first approached Wanda Sykes, who, as a lifelong Brooks fan, was a Very Fast Yes. Screenwriters and comedians like comedians Ike Barinholtz and David Stassen came on board soon after were not only their on-screen talents, but notably having a ton of experience with writers' rooms. It was definitely the hardest thing we'd ever embarked on, Barinholtz noted. It had been a hot minute since I had been writing sketches. It had been pretty much since Mad TV. And then you fall in love with the sketch world all over again. The writing process was was spread out over three or four months of Zoom calls with a huge staff trying to figure out what worked, what didn't, and what could fit their production budgets. We each had pet projects or pet storylines that we knew we wanted, Kroll says. I was interested in something around the Russian Revolution, Ike and Dave were interested in the Civil War, and Wanda was interested in Shirley Chisholm. And then we thought the story of Jesus and Mary would be a great other big tentpole story, and then we would build out the rest from there. Once again, once he signed off on the structure, Brooks started pitching jokes he had been sitting on for literally decades. For instance, Barinholtz knew he wanted to do a segment in which he played General Ulysses S. Grant. He recalls, we kind of said to Brooks, yeah, well, we have this Grant Civil War piece. And he goes, perfect. When Lee signs the treaty, he'll turn over and his saber will hit all of his men in the nuts. And it's just like, boom, there you go. That is in the show. He's 96, but he's still spry. You could pitch him something and he could think about it for a second and give you a really smart insight on that pitch. Sykes concurs, saying that keeping the show and Brooks's comedic spirit was paramount. She notes, "We had to have his blessing and his approval, or we would have been idiots, really, and very arrogant and full of ourselves, to think that, "Oh, we got this, no, no, no. I would always ask, "What did Mel say? This is his baby, and we would just all feel so honored to be that next generation to keep it going. I hope he's still he's still around, and we can add, and we can do some more. This was also a major opportunity for Sykes to play Chisholm, the first woman to run for a major party's nomination for president in the United States. A moment the show captures by having Chisholm's life play out as though it's in the context of a Norman Lear 70s sitcom. It was something the comedian had been trying to get off the ground for years. I've always wanted to do something about Shirley Chisholm, and my producing partner, Paige Hurwitz, and I, we've always laughed about that, Sykes said. But because whatever we were talking about, I would say, yeah, and then I can play Shirley Chisholm. And she was like, Wanda, really? Come on, it's a cooking show. And I was like, yeah, then I'll do Shirley Chisholm's favorite dishes. We got a kick out of that. Still, Sykes says the hardest nut to crack for any of their ideas was, how do you make it mell? How do you, you mell it up? One thing Crow realized is that Brooks' movies are funny first and foremost. While he's engaged in social satire, he's not terribly political and he was invariably silly. Kroll notes that we, that became the guiding light for us as we figured out tonally what we wanted to do, and it really became always going back to that. Not only was Brooks involved creatively, but he also narrates the show. For Kroll, directing Brooks led to a number of nerve wracking and titillating sessions. Kroll recalls Him either being like, oh, that's funny, or no, no, that's stupid. Either way, you're living on a razor's edge. Or pitching a joke. Truly the idea that I would ever pitch a joke to Mel Brooks and watch his head go back with a laugh is crazy to me. When it came to casting the approximately 300 roles for the series, the producers soon discovered that they would have no problem recruiting familiar faces to take part. A who's who of comedic talents, including Quinta Brunson, Jack Black, Pamela Adlon, Josh Gad, Emily Ratajkowski, Seth Rogen, and Kumail Nanjiani, just to name a few, stepped up for the chance to work in a Mel Brooks production. There were definitely people like Johnny Knoxville who called Nick the day it was an, it was announced and was literally anything, whatever you are doing. Then there were so many people who we called, and it was just as such an easy yes. Baron Holt said. Anyone who was available and in town said yes. After all the blood, sweat, and laughs, critical approval was one thing, but viewers tuning in to such an old-school property was something else. In a pleasant surprise, History of the World Part Two, was a hit for Hulu, cracking the top 10 of Nielsen's original program streaming chart for the week of March 6. Barinholtz, in particular, did not expect a decidedly new fan base to materialize. I knew that guys my age were going to watch it, but the other, but the other night at this party, my friend's daughter's friend came up, Baron Holtz recalled. She's like nine, a 19-year-old 19, a 19 woman, and she was like, I'm a huge fan. I thought she was going to say of the Mindy Project, and then she says History of the World Part 2. And I was like, wow. I think it's one of those things where it's been so long since the first one came out. People just can't wait to tell me what they think. That was Mel Brooks Goes Back in Time for More by Gregory Elwood, from the, also from the Contenders section. And those are articles from The Envelope, a special issue of the Los Angeles Times for June 22, 2023. Okay, let's read some articles from the Jewish Journal for June 16th to the 22nd, 2023, starting with the My Turn section. This is called Good Riddance to Corporate Pride by Matthew Schultz. For years now, it's been a rather safe bet for major brands to deck themselves out in rainbows every June. The LGBT uh, issue, once at the center of America's culture war, seemed to have settled into a comfortable consensus, allowing brands to boldly champion the cause, exuding an aura of cutting-edge progressiveness, all the while treading on safe ground. In 2023, however, this kind of of corporate allyship which some call rainbow capitalism is no longer guaranteed to help generate revenue. It may be in fact a financial liability, but light faced a boycott over its partnership with a trans activist target took it for its line of LGBT kids apparel that included a uh, trans apparel and PetSmart has come under fire for its pride themed dog ensembles. In response to brands, uh, in response brands are trying to do damage control. Bud Light has released a twangy pickup trucky advertisement pandering to heterosexual America. Target has pulled some of the Pride March, uh, and other brands are keeping quiet. This makes plain brand. This make, this makes plain uh, something that uh, should have been obvious from the start. The transformation of Pride from a march into a month-long rainbow-saturated consumerist bacchanal was never about allyship or support. It was about profit. Threaten a costly boycott and the rainbows disappear. The equation was never more complicated than that. One response might be to demand a more authentic and enduring show of support from brands. The last thing the LGBT community needs right now is fair-weather friends. Solai Ho wrote in the San Francisco Chronicle. What would actually keep corporate diversity gestures from being shallow would be working for LGBT rights year-round not just in June, star, uh, during Pride. This, however, is precisely the wrong approach. There is, in fact, no way to keep corporate diversity gestures from being shallow. This is their nature, and the suggestion that year-round rainbows would do the trick reveals the extent to which we are deluded about the game these companies are playing. Instead, which should say good riddance to corporate pride, and we should stop swooning when major companies signal allegiance to political causes. These gestures are meaningless, soulless, and insincere. They are also unnecessary. Why do I need the container store to tell me to organize with pride? What good will it accomplish to switch Listerine, to switch Listerine from a rainbow bottle or to eat gray Skittles because, as the packaging proclaims, only one rainbow matters during Pride? These acts of corporate virtue signal, uh, signalizing are grating and offensive in their condensation. They're also a distraction from the real ways in which companies make a often negative impact on the world. For example, Nike can play progressive by partnering with Colin Kaepernick despite having actively lobbied to block legislation that would threaten their ability to use forced labor from persecuted Uighur uh, Muslims in, Sh- in China. Woke marketing is often a smokescreen designed to hide gruesome labor practices and extractive manufacturing processes. We are embarrassingly naive about our corporate overloads. We think that Elon Musk will solve climate change and build a new world for us on Mars. We think that Disney is an ally for fighting the good fight. In truth, there are no corporate saviors. They are profiteers. They want your money and they'll do what they can in order to get it. Why would we do? We would do well uh, to be a bit more skeptical, guarding our wallets and resisting g- uh, garish, rainbow-colored attempts to claim our loyalty and our paychecks. As serfs in a hyper-consumerist society, we are trained to think that the best way to live our values is to buy buckets from companies whose marketing panders to those values. This is a sign of how deeply the logic brand. Uh, identity, and consumerism has dominated our political imaginations. Yet we should demand for fair labor practices and fair trade practices, but such things come about as a result of pressure from regulators and labor organizers. They're not dreamt up by marketing departments or DEI consultants. The revolution will not be sold at Target. It will not be made in a sweatshop. It won't come in a six-pack. The work work of pride is the work of building community and striving for equality. It is the pursuit of the dream of a more just society. It needs believers, not sponsors. That was Good Riddance to Corporate Pride by Matthew Schultz from the My section. Matthew Schultz is the author of the essay collection, What Came Before 2020. All right, we move on now to the Nation World Briefs section. And this first one is called Two Israeli Cabinet Ministers Cancel or Change Meetings with US Jews in the Face of Protests by Ron Campius, Jewish Telegraphic Agency. Two Israeli ministers who have built relationships with Jewish leaders in the diaspora canceled or shifted meetings with American Jewish organizations at the last minute in the face of protests. Amihai Chikti, the Minister of Diaspora Affairs, moved a meeting on June eighth, that was to be hosted by the Washington, D.C. area's Jewish Federation. The meeting was initially reported to be canceled, but a spokesperson told the Jerusalem Post that it was taking place but had been moved to a secret location. chick had previously said he couldn't make the meeting because it conflicted with his flight home. Nir Barkat, the economy minister and former Jerusalem mayor and tech entrepreneur, canceled an event at a Boston-area synagogue scheduled for the same day. The abrupt changes come after a week during which protests, often led by Israeli expatriates, have repeatedly disrupted the activities of Israeli officials visiting the United States for a pro-Israel parade in New York last Sunday. The protests aim to support mass Israeli street demonstrations against the right-wing government's effort to significantly weaken the judiciary. In Boston, protesters confront Barkat in his hotel, and a video posted to social media showed a protester rush past security toward the minister whose guards threw him to the ground. The protester was hospitalized and questioned by police. Barkat addressed the incident on Twitter by writing, A political murder is only a matter of time in the state of Israel. That was two Israeli cabinet ministers cancel or change meetings with U.S. Jews in the face of protests by Ron Campius, Jewish Telegraphic Agency. And this next one is called State Department Denounces Roger Waters' Berlin Concert as Deeply Offensive to the Jewish People by Aaron Bandler. The State Department denounced former Pink Floyd bassist Roger Waters' recent concert imagery as being deeply offensive to the Jewish people and said that Waters has a lengthy history. Of anti-semitism the Associated Press reported that at a June 6 uh, press briefing the department was asked if they agreed with a tweet from Special Envoy to monitor and combat anti-semitism Deborah Lipstadt condemning Waters's despicable Holocaust distortion the department replied that Lipstadt's tweet speaks for itself the concert in question which took place in Berlin contained imagery that is deeply offensive to Jewish people and minimize the Holocaust. They said the artist in question has a long track record of using anti-Semitic tropes to degenerate Jewish uh, Jewish people. Waters came under fire for donning a Nazi-like uniform and comparing Palestinian journalist Shirin Abu Akleh, who was killed during an Israeli Defense Force raid in Jenin uh, last year, to Anne Frank uh, during his May 17 and 18 shows in Berlin. The former Pink Floyd frontman is being investigated by Berlin police over the matter. German law bars any display of Nazi symbols, but provides no exception for an artist for an artistic or educational purposes. Waters responded with a May 26 statement saying that the elements of my performance that have been questioned are quite clearly a statement in opposition to fascism, injustice, and bigotry in all its forms. That was State Department denounces Roger Waters' Berlin concert as deeply offensive to the Jewish people by Aaron Bandler. And this next one is Five Israelis Wounded in Samaria Drive By Shooting from the Jewish News Syndicate. Five Israelis were wounded in a terrorist attack on June 13 near the Rihan Crossing in northwestern Samaria. In an initial shooting, terrorists uh, driving in a vehicle opened fire on a passing car near the Palestinian-controlled town of Yabad. Magan David Adam, emergency medical personnel, treated the victim, a man in his 30s, for a wound to his upper body before evacuating him to the hospital in stable condition. Four soldiers were wounded by subsequent gunfire targeting their military vehicle, according to the IDF. The troops were evacuated for treatment in moderate condition. Israeli forces launched a manhunt for the per- perpetrator or perpetrators who fled in their car. That was five Israelis wounded in Samaria drive-by shooting from the Jewish News Jewish news Syndicate. And those are all from the Nation World Breach section. And here's something from the My Turn section. Wedding at 1C, W-A-N-N-S-E-E, by Blake Flayton. Several weeks ago, I had the privilege of spending the week in Berlin. I had planned to go with a friend until my dad arrived several days later, but unfortunately a family emergency rendered part of the trip a solo venture, something I was originally apprehensive about. Touring the streets of Berlin without someone to share reflections about what I was seeing and learning felt daunting, especially since I knew the trip was bound to stir up strong emotions. While wandering through the Jewish Museum, the memorial to the murdered Jews of Europe and strolling under the Brandenburg Gate, where book-burning celebrations once raged in grueling euphoria, I resorted to social media to express my feelings, perhaps a tad too often. But fortunately, my dad, a fellow student of Jewish and European history, arrived for perhaps the most dramatic moment of the trip. The two of us toured the beautiful grounds of Wansi, a picturesque take front just outside the city dotted with impressive estates. But the shores are known mostly for one meeting in particular. In the winter of 1942, 14 members of the Nazi high command gathered in the Grand Villa M. uh, Groben to meticulously organize the final solution to the Jewish question. No longer disenfranchisement and deportation, but mass extermination. Needless to say, the exhibit was somber. We took our time reading each placard, peering over the official documents that detailed which local authorities and Nazi-occupied Europe needed to cooperate to facilitate the transport to Auschwitz. We listened to the speeches from Goebbels and Goering and deeply internalized the juxtaposition of such serene postcard-like views with perhaps the most inhuman ideas to ever spring from humanity. I concluded the tour by wrapping an Israeli flag around my shoulders outside the gates, feeling a profound sense of pride in the Jewish people's resilience in the face of such horrors. As my dad and I sat in silence on a bench waiting to return to Berlin, a large charter bus pulled in front of us. Spilling from its doors came handsome men and women in tuxedos and gowns, laughing, cheering, and starey is this the right step to go back in, into town? My dad asked. One gentleman responded, This is not the public bus. We are heading to a wedding. We then turned to see the main event. The the Wassau apartment oncey, described in English as a cozy houseboat hotel where fellow smartly dressed chatterers queued with cocktails in hand. Charming classical music filled the air of the front garden. While not 50 feet away, melancholy tourists, some of whom have been... Uh, who may have been Jewish, walked from where perhaps their grandparents' death was planned to the most minute detail. My dad and I looked at each other utterly gobsmacked. My heart rate quickened, my eyes batted. In the way it happens when you are confronted with something you instantly recognize as significant. We both began to laugh. Real estate is real estate, my dad said, shaking his head, which in the moment I could only respond with a nervous giggle. The next day, the moment stuck with me. And as my dad and I toured the Sachsenhausen concentration camp just north of Berlin and later the upper hip and enjoyable flea market in Mauerpark, Park, where families grazed on schnitzel and boomboxes blared in celebration of life. At Sachsenhausen, freedom was torn away from thousands of Jews and political prisoners of the Nazi regime. But here in Mauerpark Park, it was an endless supply of it. It was like the memorial of the murdered Jews of Europe consisting of thousands of gray slabs of concrete in the epicenter of the city, wedged between commutes and field trips and bar crawls. Within the slabs there is an eerie silence, feelings of suffocation and confusion, while just barely outside tourists pose and plan the next techno club to hit. While passing a beaming dancer in a Free Palestine t-shirt, do do cartwheels and splits on the freshly mowed grass, I suddenly began to refine what I had been thinking throughout my time in Berlin. Sure, as my dad had said, real estate is real estate. What what did I expect to find in Germany? Considering the country does a great deal to uh, to memorialize its crimes, to honor those affected and to educate its children, it would be an impossible expectation to find the descendants of Nazis perpetually remorseful, so much so that life in a European capital ceases to carry on. Yet I couldn't square it, nonetheless. I cannot accept that the Marshall Plan or plaques on the street in recognition of deported Jews or newly renovated Jewish historical sites was enough to assuage easily the most traumatic event in world history. After all, those Jewish historical sites still need to be protected by both on-duty police officers and an endless procession of metal detectors and pat-downs. If one acknowledges that block is, blood is thicker than water, then one, without holding all Germans responsible for the crimes of the ancestors, must also acknowledge that there is still bloodstains on the cobblestone streets of Berlin. Before heading home, I took a moment to express some concluding thoughts online. I don't feel angry at what happened then. I have been angry every, every day for the past decade about, uh, about all that and I don't have much grievance left to spare. Instead, I feel angry at what is happening now. At the catch-22 of thousands of international tourists spending thousands of euros on transportation to and from the camps, on tour guides, on food and drink between depressing ventures, on SIM cards so they can document how they are feeling in the face of the destruction of European Jewry, I wonder how many of you have been to Israel, or Brooklyn, or Pico Robinson, or even to one of Germany's operating synagogues. How many of you see how Jews live now, how Jews continue to live out their stories, uh, what they teach their children? Are we just an exhibit for you intended to impose warm feelings of relief that at least you're never going to kill anyone for being different? There is a scandal, unfair as it may be, of Germany continuing to be Germany. Regardless of how remorseful government officials are, There are still old folks here and dearly departed relatives buried under our feet who knew what was happening outside of their wet, well-tailored lawns. I don't want to come back. I don't want to hear children laughing here. I don't want to see guys in leather on their way to the next conquest. I don't want to regard history as a chapter in a textbook rather than a still-festering open wound. This country and this continent is a pile of graves where even the most enlightened of people dance. The only regret I have during my trip to Berlin was not having the time to connect with the living, breathing Jewish community in the former Reich, the strongest vanguard against Germany standing only as a memorial to what once was. I did not uh, spend a Shabbat dinner with them. I didn't bow my head in synagogue or sing in old Yiddish tunes. In other words, I didn't take my own advice in honoring how Jews lived rather than just how they died. I am quite embarrassed over this lack of judgment, and therefore I have decided that should I return to this land of such unspeakable horror, I will place breaking bread with fellow Jews at a much higher significance than touring a camp or reading about Nazis. They, quite frankly, don't deserve the satisfaction. That was Wedding at Wansi by Blake Flayton from the My Turn section. Blake Flankton is new media director and columnist for the Jewish Journal. All right, We now go to Rossner's Domain from Israel. And this is called Normality and the Judaization of Galilee by Shemul Rossner. There is no debate about one thing. The share of Jews in the Galilee region is decreasing. It has decreased from about 25% to less than 15%. On all other issues, there is a debate. Why do Jews leave? Are Jews discriminated against or Arabs? Are state institutions sabotaging the strategic goal of Judaizing the Galilee? Should there be such a goal? Is such a goal a Zionist or racist goal? Is it realistic? Try to grapple with these sensitive questions and you get a headache. They involve policies of the Israel Lands Administration of the Ministry of Housing. They involve construction in Arab settlements and a different policy for development in Jewish settlements. They involve the rules governing admission uh, committees, which cause Jewish settlements to remain small. They involve environmental concerns and building of high-rises and the character of rural villages. They involve the thorny question of whether and to what extent Israel is already a normal and capitalist country where regions can just obey the rules of supply and demand. Or maybe Israel isn't quite normal. It is a country in which a battle is still waged, usually without violence, over the question of who is the true possessor of the land, uh, Jews or Arabs. In such a case, the nation-state of the Jewish people must prevent Arab dominance in an important region, lest one day it seeks to break away. Israelis who raise the alarm warn of an Israeli Donbass region. This is the area in Ukraine that is densely populated by Russians, and thus became a magnet for dispute. The alarmists remember uh, that in the original partition plan, the heart of the Galilee from Nazareth to the Lebanese border was not intended to be part of, of Jewish Israel. Demographic trends may strengthen an Arab drive to divide the land not within the framework of a 1967 two state solution, but rather within the framework of a much less Israel-friendly 1947 two-state solution. Take this important question and add a bubbling cauldron of politics, of sectorial interests, of farmers and real estate developers, of ideological battles. What you get is a chaotic and incoherent policy. The State of Israel does not say what it wants and when it does, it does not act in a consistent way to meet its objectives. One must admit, Part of the problem stems from the fact that Israel is supposed to behave as a normal country governed by law even when it faces a challenge that is not quite normal. On the one hand, Israel must guard equality. On the other, equality could lead to a result that complicates its strategic objectives. This tension between values and, and interests is nothing new. Similarly. The attempts of each side of the debate to present the other side's position in a negative light is not new either. The defenders of equality will present the promoters of Jewish settlements as racist without taking seriously the demographic challenges in the Galilee. The promoters of Jewish settlements will present the defenders of equality as anti-Zionist without taking seriously the need to have civil equality. Why is this suddenly important? Because the Israeli government has decided to draft a new policy that will deepen the subsidy of, for land use in areas of national priority. Their priority, according to this new policy, refers to demographic and or security distress. What this policy could mean, how it would be implemented, and whether it would pass legal tests remains to be seen the difficulties of implementation in the Galilee will reignite the debate on whether a legal reform is essential the government is expected to resist legal barriers and in cases they materialize in case they materialize the pull its usual complaint about the court's tendency to block required policies but what will happen in the Galilee let's go back to looking at the facts we we could agree on first Arabs, too, need some uh, to live somewhere. Second, Arabs and Jews do not always get along. Third, where there is a clear dominance of one population, the other population tends to leave. In other words, if Israel wants to have Jews in the Galilee and in a significant proportion, it must strengthen their ability to live together in numbers that will provide them with a sense of security and control over the compounds where they live. And fourth, The current policy does not correspond with fact number three. That is, it needs to change either by giving up on the idea of strengthening the Jewish presence in the Galilee and coming to terms with the challenging demographic reality, or by dedicating resources and outlining plans that would tempt more Jews to live there. That was Normality and the Judaization of Galilee by Shemuel Rosner. Something else from the uh, Rosner's domain from Israel. This is called something I wrote in Hebrew, also by Shmuel Rosner. The talks on possible compromise concerning the Judaic reform make me write this. Made me write this. President Isaac Herzog proved that the institution of the presidency is still necessary in the state of Israel. He proved that it has meaning in an age where every time a president is elected, the question is asked anew: Why does Israel need it? Here is the answer. Israel is a country whose political system is polarized. The public is less polarized, but that is a topic for another discussion. Often it is polarized to the point of stupidity. The politicians put themselves on high trees and are unable to come down from them on their own. This is where Herza comes in, a president with a ladder. That was something I wrote in Hebrew. This one is called a week's numbers. The town, not Galil, formerly Upper Nazareth, was established to lure and settle Jewish uh, population in the heart of Galilee. With time, Jews move out while Arabs move in. And this is called a reader's response. Jody Abramson asks, whatever happened to the Israel-Lebanon gas deal? Answer, Google it. It seems to work for the benefit of both countries. And BTW, another gas field was discovered off Israel coast just two or three weeks ago. That's a reader's response, and those are all by Shmuel Rosner from Rosner's Domain from Israel. Shmuel Rosner is Senior Political Editor. For more analysis of Israel and international politics, visit Rosner's Domain at jewishjournal.com slash rosnersdomain. And now we have, from the cover section, a series of little articles, and it's all under the uh, the title Welcome to our inaugural Youth Issue, curated by Tebby Raphael. Summer's arrival signals the end of another year of hard work, growth, and perseverance for children worldwide. And while our readers at the journal are typically adults, we have always understood the irreplaceable value of children as the eternal heart and soul of our peoplehood, and more importantly, uh, to our Jewish community. While the journalists always aim to capture the pulse of the Jewish community in Los Angeles and beyond, we even feature a weekly motto on each cover that says, Open Your Community, we believe it's time to open the experience of Jewish journalism to the next generation. We're thrilled to welcome you to the journal's inaugural, Our Youth Issue, in which many of the writers are, you guessed it, youth. Last month, We asked for submissions from Jewish children between elementary and high school age levels, and we're thrilled to have received so many responses, from food to sports and civic action, Zionism to Shabbat and Jewish identity, warnings about technology to why kids should try to engage in conversations with adults at the dinner table. Uh, The topics that are featured in this first-of-its-kind issue reflect the thoughts, dreams, and struggles of our greatest Jewish natural resource, our children. We were inspired by the wisdom of the late Lord Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who observed to be a Jewish parent is to uh, make space for your child as God makes space for us. His children, Covenant and Conversation, Genesis. The journal is honored to make space for these passionate youth minds. We hope you enjoy their insights and contributions as much as we did. This first one is called The Meaning of Friendship Circle by Liba Farkash. Friendship Circle is an organization powered by the mission statement, be somebody who makes everybody feel like like somebody. Each individual is carefully placed in this world with intent, and we all have enormous capabilities to contribute. Every day is a new opportunity filled with power, potential, and meaning. Each individual matters and holds tremendous purpose. My involvement in Friendship Circle began three years ago When I moved to L.A. for high school, living away from home, I was looking for positive ways to fill my time and an opportunity to give. Joining Friendship Circle as a volunteer appeared to be a meaningful way to contribute, focus on leaving my individual world and creating space for others. Soon after, I came to recognize that these kids were truly the ones holding the powerful impact. I wasn't the one changing their lives, but rather they lit lit up mine. Each child is unique and special in their own way. My kids taught me the power of true human connection, unconditionally caring for another and limitless kindness. The sensitivity and compassion they display is awe-inspiring. One of the most powerful lessons I received was learning to listen, not just hear, but to really listen and to open my heart, connect and relate to others on a deeper level. These children express love with no bounds, They are genuine and authentic. There is no getting caught up in the insignificant shallow surface level. Friendship circle is truly the happiest place. The joy and positivity are contagious, spilling into every aspect of my life. The constant expression of gratitude is what has left a lasting impact. At times, the world is flawed and doesn't always treat these individuals with the compassion everyone deserves. They shine their wonderful light, but for some it's too bright. They, yet they don't diminish themselves; they express their love and beauty. They build up people's worlds with their kindness and grace. In a few, just a few days, I'm graduating and moving toward the next chapter. But as I reflect, my heart is filled with gratitude. Thank you for welcoming me into the space that knows no judgment nor negativity. Friendship circle reveals within and empowers people to express their loving, nurturing nature. It often inspires through uh, allowing us to give of ourselves. I'm forever grateful for my Friendship Circle family. That was The Meaning of Friendship Circle by Liba Farkash. Leva Farkash, 17, recently graduated from Ohel Hana High School and is looking forward to spending a year at seminary in Israel beginning this fall. This next one is called Exploring My Identity by Eva Pretzky. This past year, my eighth grade class, pressman, class at Pressman Academy participated in the special partnership program with a school in Selma, Alabama. Every Tuesday during our lunchtime, we met on Zoom with a group of students from RB Hudson STEAM Academy in Selma. We talked about our different I- I identities, cultures, and life experiences. Week after week, we were able to know a little more about one another. The culmination of the program was a four-day trip to the southern United States. Together with the R.B. Hudson eighth graders, my Pressman class traveled to Selma, Birmingham, and Montgomery, where we learned about the Civil Rights Movement. The trip was a whole new experience for me. For the first time, I met peers from a different culture and way of life. I not only learned about the important history of the South, but I also learned about myself and came to terms with different parts of my identity. I live in a Jewish bubble. I go to a Jewish school. Jewish summer camp, and attend synagogue often. All of this has shaped me into identifying as strongly as a Jew. Because of this, oftentimes when I meet non-Jewish people, I can't help but feel different and in the minority. I have to explain to my non-Jewish friends on my swim team why I don't celebrate Christmas or Easter and why I miss uh, so many practices in September. I live in such an insular Jewish community, and I feel like a minority in the outside world. However, The experiences during the civil rights trip opened my eyes to some new parts of my identity. On the first day of the trip, we heard from a foot soldier who participated in the 1967 march from Selma to Montgomery. She pointed out to me and my classmates that even though we are Jewish, the color of our skin is still white. She told us that when someone sees us, they see a white person. They went on to say that the black kids can't hide. They can't change the color of their skin. For the majority of the trip, we were in cities that were predominantly black. There were many experiences throughout this trip that emphasized our whiteness. This was a new way of looking at myself. While I was learning about a new culture and identity, there was, there, so were the students from RB Hudson. They had never met Jewish people before. We had fun teaching them about our beliefs, culture, and religion, even though some concepts were hard to explain. But truly, in the southern United States, our Jewishness didn't matter. We were white people. I was just another white person. Another experience that stuck with me was a conversation I had with our security guard, who was also black. We were visiting the EGI National Memorial for Peace and Justice in Montgomery, Alabama. Our guard kept on asking whether he would have survived had he lived in the past when black people were lynched because of the color of their skin. This was disturbing to think about, and it's unimaginable, too. Also, the lynching was part of his history and not mine. I had to ask myself, what role would I have played had I lived in the past? Had I lived in the 1960s, I hope that I would have joined the civil rights movement. I am proud to be associated with strong Jewish leaders like Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel and Rabbi Jacob Fressman, after whom my school is named, who marched arm in arm with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Also, several hundred Jews stepped up to picket ride freedom buses, register black voters, and offer their professional expertise to help where needed. The Jews were upstanders, and although my whiteness felt uncomfortable for me, especially after learning all about the terrible events of racial violence from the past, there are also reasons for me to feel proud to be Jewish. I returned home from the South with two new perspectives. On the one hand, a lot of the time I felt guilty when learning about all the horrible acts of brutality that so many white people committed against black people during slavery and the civil rights movement. This may be come to terms with the color of my skin, which is not something I had done before. Yes, I am Jewish, but on the outside, I am white. For the first time, I felt like I was in the majority and that my minority identity didn't matter. On the other hand, being Jewish does matter because of the Jewish activists who participated passionately in the civil rights movement. Thank you to our teacher, Rabbi Haim Turup, who created this extremely special experience for me and my class that helped me to gain a new outlook on who I am. That was Exploring My Identity by Eva Pretzky. Eva Pretzky just graduated from 8th grade at Pressman Academy and will be attending Milken Community School for high school. And we continue. This one is called The Value of Eating Healthy from a Young Age by Aaron Tannenbaum. As a Torah observant Jew, I believe it's my responsibility to take care of my body, just as it is to follow the kosher laws. If my body is in good shape, then I can do a mitzvot to my fullest. Every person grows up making uh, different food choices. I learn from my parents, from my friends, from my Jewish traditions, and from the ads that I watch on YouTube. But not every food is created equal. Some foods are healthy and some foods are not. Sometimes it's not clear which is which. You might think that eating peanut butter and jam and drinking juice boxes at school means that you're eating healthy. In fact, you're just filling your stomach with sugar. How do you know if you're actually eating healthy? Uh, Not to be be able to serve God in the way that uh, the Torah commands. Sometimes it's obvious and sometimes it's a learning process. Healthy foods are foods like fresh fruits, vegetables, fatty fish, and whole grains which contain the vitamins, minerals, and plant molecules that are important for the development of our brains and our bodies. Unfortunately, most kids in the U.S. eat a diet called SAD, which stands for Standard American Diet. Although the food in this diet often tastes great, they are high in processed ingredients, refined carbohydrates, refined fats, added sugars, and salt. I don't like to be told by a food company uh, what to put in my body. Every Sunday, my brother and I go with my dad to the Larchmont Village Farmer's Market in Los Angeles. We sample the fruits at each stand. We fill our basket with different colors of produce depending on the season, and we talk to the farmers about how they grow their crops. By doing this ritual every week in the same way that we keep our Shabbat regularly, we feel very involved with our food. We've learned that you can eat healthy and still enjoy your food. For example, Some of the foods that we love to eat include lentil pasta, baked with wild salmon, sushi rolls with veggies, homemade kale chips, homemade almond milk, and even the occasional jamba juice. Sometimes people ask me if I feel like I'm missing out by not eating junk food. They think I don't enjoy my food. In fact, eating healthy means I have access to a wide variety of the richest and most healthful foods in the world. It actually makes me feel abundant because of all the opportunities that it opens up to me. You don't have to wait until you're in your 20s to eat healthier. You can start right away by adding one or two fresh and nutritious foods into your diet. A small change makes a big difference. Eating healthy means I'm eating closer to what kids ate over 100 years ago. Fresh whole foods that were grown on local farms or packaged foods produced by small food companies with wholesome ingredients that we recognize. Eating healthy food is about being connected to your food and your family and being aware of what goes on goes into your body. I get peace of mind from knowing that I'm not putting something into my body that doesn't belong there. I also feel good for feel good after eating a well-balanced diet. Eating healthy also means that I get to be a partner with my parents. Besides picking out my fruits and veggies, I also help choose recipes. I help cook, and I discuss the ingredients on the packaged food labels. I don't just eat healthy, I think healthy. Being a kid doesn't mean you have to eat Wacky Mac, chicken nuggets, and pizza. You can eat healthy, kid-friendly foods that are enjoyable and tasty, too. And it's not about becoming a vegan or vegetarian, either. We eat plenty of meat. Our marma's Argentinian. It's about eating the right foods and occasionally enjoying a treat. Choosing to eat this way has changed my life for the better. While I can't say for sure that I that I'll always eat this way, I enjoy the creativity and learning experience that comes with it. Besides, just as I can't imagine a Shabbat going without going to synagogue, I can't imagine a Sunday uh, not going to the farmer's market with my dad and brother. That was The Value of Eating Healthy from a Young Age by Aaron Tannenbaum. Aaron Tannenbaum, 10, is a rising 6th grader at Beverly Vista Middle School. And let's go to this one. The Post-COVID World is Becoming Less Familiar with Human Interactions by Karen Banavsheha. Sitting in a restaurant, I began to look around, a room full of people, full of stories to share and conversations to be had yet every single person's head was facing downward, their glaze of their their cell phones reflecting back up. While technology rapidly advances and takes over the world, quality time is diminishing. It is more often one finds people interacting with phones rather than with each other. After two consecutive years of virtual life and lockdown, we have become more dependent on the resources and entertainment that technology provides. During the years of quarantine, We turned to our phones and computers to connect us because, at the time, that was the only option available. However, as we returned to normal, many people carried on with an attachment to devices rather than readjusting to traditional human interactions. I spoke with with a learning resource specialist named Jennifer, who asked only for her first name to be used, who said that dependence on technology can be difficult to prevent after the pandemic, especially among students. I think that during COVID, we really had to rely on technology for the human connection aspect. And I think for students, when you do that for a year, it's really hard to come out of that habit uh, of relying on technology, Jennifer said. This generation is one of the first to witness such a drastic wave of technological innovation by living alongside the internet and social media. The positive resources that technology provides—easy communication, high efficiency levels, and connection despite distance—have greatly benefited society. However, when technology is misused and priceless real-life connections are replaced, a large sense of humanity is lost. As technology continues to grow, it becomes increasingly important to educate this generation about its impacts. Although there are many unknown factors due to the newness of technology, it is crucial to research and discuss beyond the surface level. The immediate joy that comes from scrolling through social media will not last, but the long-term physical and mental effects will. That's the reason why those apps are made, to give you that instant gratification, that serotonin surge, because it makes you feel good and happy, Jennifer said. It's an easy way to interact, so the more students understand that, the better. Technology is here to stay. Therefore, it is important to acknowledge the value uh, benefits that it offers. However, I believe that it is important to find a balance, for it is when technology takes over our lives that negative effects appear. That was The Post-COVID World is Becoming Less Familiar with Human Interactions by Cameron Banasheha. Kama Banafsheha is a rising ninth grader at Harvard Westlake. All right, let's uh, conclude with some ads from the Jewish Journal, June 16th to the 22nd, 2023. And starting with this one. Want to avoid dentures? Come see us before it's too late. For a limited time, we are offering high-quality dental services at an unbelievable price. Please come into our state-of-the-art dental office in West L.A. for a complimentary consultation and professional analysis. 40 to 50% off, consultation and x-rays fifty dollars. All work done by an experienced dentist of twenty years or his associates. Insured and non-insured welcome PPO insurance. We do not accept MedicaL. Call 310-207-5008. We will take several before and after photos for educational purposes. Offer only valid if you need extensive dentistry with at least three crowns or more and there's this one srg senior living be more you imagine everything you need to flourish now and for years to come it's all here at our senior living communities a wealth of activities fabulous cuisine attentive service and expert health care support should the need arise it's everything you need to live your life your way please call to schedule your personalized tour independent and assisted living residences the village in north at northridge 9222 Corbin Avenue in Northridge. Website is thevillageatnorthridge.com Phone is 818-659-5593 And Independent Assisted Living and Memory Care The Village at Sherman Oaks 5450 Vesper, Vesper Avenue in Sherman Oaks. Website shermanoaksseniorliving.com And number is 818-245-5832 RCFE number one nine seven six zero six eight six nine four RFCFE number one nine seven six zero eight eight three eight and folks, that will do it for this edition of Stan Dun's Jewish Edition. So for everything that is happening with us Jews in the city, the state, the nation, Israel, and the world, find it all right here. Until next time, everybody. This is your reader and host, Mark Braun. Shalom and peace.